Right now, we're going to get the latest on the U.S. economy. I called up CBS's business analyst, Jill Schlesinger, this morning, asking her to describe why people are so down on the economy, even though we had a pretty fruitful summer. This is the most unloved economic expansion that I've ever seen. Uh, There are people out there who are saying the economy doesn't look good, and yet the spending that we saw in the third quarter was unbelievable. Gross domestic product, by the way, that's the tally of goods and services sold in the U.S., GDP usually stands at, let's call it in the twos, two and a quarter, two and a half, 2.8 percent, almost for the full decade before the pandemic. That's kind of what we saw. And then the pandemic hit and all these numbers got thrown out the window. Beginning of this year, the vast majority of economists said, we're going to go into a recession because in the past, when the interest rates go up by 5 percent in a very short period of time, those 500 basis points slow things down and we usually go into a recession. Has not happened. First quarter growth came in at an annualized pace of 2.2%. Second quarter, 2.1%. Third quarter, it was a summer sizzler. 4.9% annualized growth in the third quarter. 4.9%. So that's, I'm telling you the little story of like, holy smokes, this was incredible this past summer. So does that mean that the Fed is going to keep the screws on until they create a recession or what? Well, that's a great question because Fed has this two-day policy meeting this week. And I think that you would normally see a print like 4.9% and say, "Uh uh-oh, that means another rate hike. I don't think that's what's going to happen because also in an interesting little twist, inside of the GDP report, there is a measure of prices for the quarter. And then, by the way, and on Friday, we got a report on the prices for the month of September, the, you know, right, the third month of the quarter. And those two reports tell a similar story. When you pull out food and energy, and especially energy, which has already gone down from the peak that we were talking about $100 crude, and now we're back at 85 Okay, so when you pull those two things out, It does look like core inflation is coming pretty close to the Fed's target range. And so I think the Fed might give us a little bit of a, hey, we're going to just pause right now. Don't get excited because December we meet again and we could raise rates again. But I don't think they're going to do anything. Two reasons is, as I said, core inflation does appear to be coming down. But also the yield on the 10-year Treasury, which the Fed does not control, that yield has been trending higher. And that kind of helps the Fed tamp the brakes on the economy. And we are seeing that a bit already in the beginning of the fourth quarter. We're hearing from CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. And with those new tentative deals with the uh, between the UAW and both Ford and Stellantis, I asked her what effect that could have on the economy. I mean, I think they're going to be happy that it's settled because it's good for the labor market. Uh, you know, I know it's very easy to do simple math because we'll say, oh, it's all this money. But The last contract they signed in 2019 had no COLA, had no wage increases. So the auto workers had to live the contract they created, right, and not have any wage increases that were tied to inflation. So they had to suck it up. So it's almost like a good chunk of what the wage increases that they are seeing now are kind of payback for what they had to absorb over the last three years. So you see this as a good news. I got an email from someone saying, well, you know, this is going to just bring back inflation, the the car company, and it's going to force the car companies to automate more operations and they'll end up losing jobs. Listen, every single manufacturer of cars, of anything else, of widgets, whatever they are, is looking and has been looking at automation for just about, let me think about this, uh, 50 years, okay? So let's not conflate too many issues. 
every organization is trying to figure out how to do more with less and how and by the some of these tasks it wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to have people who were doing really dangerous work and try to get them away from that and have something else do that work that's what's happening i can't i, I mean i i would like to think that as a nation, we're going to take the people who have certain skill sets and make them and hopefully allow them to transition to another area. We haven't done that so well in the United States. You know, we're like, OK, no more coal. Coal miners. Good luck. That's kind of what we said. Not really great. So we want to try to figure out, is there way a way to use a skill set and transfer it? If you are in a business where you think there is going to be a real disruption, then you owe it to yourself to think that way for your for yourself. You know, I, I was just looking at a report that said that the number of uh, people who want to be go into accounting is dropping. I don't blame them. Who do you think is going to be ta- doing taxes in the future? It's not going to be human beings. Yeah. Okay. It's just not. So you have to really consider whether or not you want to get into that business. And you know, in the Wall Street Journal this morning, there is a headline in their report, their wealth management. It's a little extra section. It's says, can AI replace your financial advisor? It says, not yet, but wait. Because if you have the kind of advice that is rote, if you have uh, the, the kind of w- a way to look at someone's financial life and ask a series of questions that you can go through and look at a database and then have a prediction about what the advice would be, then you are going to be in a business that will be replaced eventually. I don't necessarily buy this because I, as someone who was a financial advisor, I would say about half of my job was not about anything financial, it was all emotional. And yeah. for that, so far, AI can't do the job. Yeah. Now, do we all get to share in the uh, presumed productivity benefits of all this AI, or does that payoff simply go to the investors and high-tech companies? I guess we'll have to see. You know, um, there there has been there have been periods of enormous productivity. Let's call it like the '90s, right? When we had the first internet, like Internet 1.0, and we did all start to see like this is amazing. There are real things that we can do better in our lives and in our jobs. CBS business analyst Dill Schlesinger. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. You may have seen those videos of people uh, taking off their clothes and jumping into ice-cold water because it makes them feel better. Does it really? Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Apparently, uh, this hasn't been studied, but the anecdotal evidence seems to be that a cold water plunge can do everything from reduce inflammation to uh, elevate your mood. Well, let me start by saying I'm never doing this. <laughs> I can't stand cold water. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I saw an article in uh, NPR uh, and it talked about a, a, a group of people in Seattle called the Puget Sound Plungers. And it's actually a group of several thousand people who apparently jump in the frigid waters. And yeah, it seems to be quite the thing right now. In fact, even my anesthesiologist tells me that he has now built a cold water bath uh, in his garage and every morning he does it for five minutes. So uh, even one of my close colleagues uh, uh, does this. So what does the science say? I understand there's been very little 
study into this? Um, the thing is, is that you're actually right. There's far more information on the dangers of cold water exposure than there are the health benefits of doing it. Now, one of the things that's happened is that some research that has been done in the past has been done on cold water swimming. The problem is, is that the benefits that uh, are found from cold water swimming could largely be due to the exercise component. And what most people are doing does not involve any exercise. Rather, it involves just plunging. So as a result, it's difficult to separate out the benefits of the exercise from those of the cold water itself. Well, it sounds like the what the plungers appreciate about plunging is the effect of the cold water in that initial uh, in that initial plunge. You have that immediate shock reaction where you begin to shiver like crazy, and I guess surviving that gives you this euphoric feeling when you finally get out. Well, I mean, cold water is a stress to our body. Cold temperatures is a stress to our body. And so it does release our stress hormones. So we do have an increase in dopamine and epinephrine and cortisol. And when those things, and part of the reason those go up is because you're experiencing cold and our body's natural response to cold is to shiver. And we shiver so that we generate more heat to combat the cold. So, uh, but if people do it just for a short period of time so that they don't actually drop their body temperature significantly, they can raise their stress hormones and get sort of a euphoric feeling without necessarily having the negative uh, consequences. Now, there are risks to doing it, though. Yeah. And now as a cardiac surgeon yourself, does this put additional stress on the heart that could be dangerous to somebody who has any kind of heart condition? Yeah, absolutely. People who have cardiac disease uh, should not do this because you could actually have a heart attack from doing it. Most of the people who are doing it are people who are, you know, younger, healthier people. And that's another reason it's very difficult to study because you're looking at a group of people who are oftentimes, you know, athletic to some degree, who are active to a greater degree, who don't necessarily have disease. And so they're doing this and they're reporting these benefits. But if you look at a general population, you'd have to look at all all people. And certainly the, the risk of cold exposure could include frostbite or hypothermia or arrhythmia, arrhythmias or heart attacks. But I mean, there are some recommended best practices that are coming out of the um, medical community. Uh, and some physicians have suggested if you're going to do it, start at you know, 70 degrees and work your way down to 60 degrees and then to 50 degrees and so forth. So while we wait for the uh, more formal clinical tests, what kind of evidence is there uh, as to any benefits from uh, cold water plunging? There, there has been some limited amount of research. And, and for example, um, you know, acute and repeated cold exposure has apparently been found to improve insulin sensitivity. And insulin, as we know, uh, helps to regulate our blood, blood sugar. Uh, the thing is, is that in order to get this benefit, you need to actually shiver. So it can't be getting in and getting out. You actually have to activate your muscles through shivering. And apparently this uh, will cause the response that is very similar to what you'd see during exercise. The one thing that probably does have the most support is a reduction in inflammation. And this is probably why athletes do it. And apparently the people who worked out, did the cold plunge and then lifted weight could lift more weight than the people who worked out, didn't do a cold plunge and then worked out. So there may be some, you know, anti-inflammatory response that's, uh, that's useful. But, uh, you know, when we work out, we cause inflammation of our muscle and then the muscle recovers. And it's that process that results in muscle hypertrophy, 
you know, it getting bigger. And that process is dependent on inflammation. And we've long told people that, you know, if you're going to work out, you shouldn't take, you know, an anti-inflammatory drug right after because it will reduce the effect of your workout. So the, the cold water may actually have the same effect as an anti-inflammatory. It's just not chemical. Again, this hasn't been well studied, so it's impossible to know. But these are this is one of the, the things that's being proposed scientifically. So there could be some benefits. Just don't overdo it. That's correct. Again, it's the concept of some is good. It doesn't mean more is better. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Good to have you tuned in this morning. This is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and a nonprofit is working to get the word out about a treatment that can help cancer patients do what used to be impossible, keep their hair during chemotherapy. Carnage Radio's Heather, Heather Bosch has the story. After a breast cancer diagnosis, Ingrid Harger, the wife of a colleague, went through surgery, but her doctor said it wasn't enough. She needed chemotherapy. The first question I asked my oncologist was, will I lose my hair? And he said yes. For many patients, particularly women, hair loss is one of the most dreaded side effects of chemotherapy because, Ingrid says, it's not just about hair. A lot of times you're losing a part of your body um, and your sense of you know, femininity is just rocked and you, you don't even feel like yourself anymore. And then it, to add insult to injury, you're losing your hair which for a lot of women and for myself was part of my identity. Fortunately, she says her doctor also mentioned scalp cooling technology. In some cases, it helps patients keep their hair during chemo. Nancy Marshall is co-founder of the Rapunzel Project website, which shares information about how it works. The cold constricts the blood vessels that lead to the hair follicles. And if there's very little blood flow to the hair cells in the scalp, then basically the chemo drugs don't get there. Nancy says patients can use cold caps chilled with dry ice or machines that keep the scalp cold. Ingrid used the latter. It's basically an ice cap. It's very cold. So when they turn it on, it it feels like um, a giant brain freeze. But then after that, you, you kind of go numb. Um, and so it's not so bad. She used it during each chemotherapy session and says she kept most of her hair. But for patients hoping to do the same, she cautions, the technology is not widely available. I actually had to switch Mm-hmm. cancer centers to seek out a, a center that had this equipment and that would allow me to do it because it's not done everywhere and not allowed everywhere. And Ingrid had to pay out of pocket to get the treatment. Nancy says renting a cold cap can cost between $1,500 and $2,000. Machine systems typically run between $2,000 and $2,500. She says some insurance companies are starting to cover the treatment, but... Every policy has different exclusions. Every policy has different deductibles. There are so many rules and regulations and insurance that most people just throw their hands up. Which is why her nonprofit, the Rapunzel Project, not only gets the word out about cold cooling technology, it helps put patients in contact with providers and groups offering financial aid. Because again, Nancy says this isn't just about hair. And it's not a vanity thing. It's identity. It's empowerment. It's privacy. The ability to go through treatment without always looking and sometimes not even feeling like a cancer patient. It's it's a mental health thing for me, at least. And I think for many others that I've talked to. We put a link to the Rapunzel Project website at MyNorthwest.com. How long has it been known that, that, that cooling would work like this? Only about 
I think the early 2000s is when Nancy's friend was first diagnosed. Both of them were diagnosed with breast cancer. Nancy did not have to go through chemo, but one of her best friends did and lost and had heard about this technology in the UK and actually researched it and then tried it. So it's a fairly Mm. new technology. I mean, around here, we're cutting edge when it comes to cancer treatment. Is this widely available or just not? No, no. Ingrid lives around here. She had to kind of search out where uh, this technology might be available. Um, I have a dear person in my life who has fourth stage breast cancer. She didn't have enough time to get this kind of treatment. They couldn't line it up because they had to get her into chemo so quickly. And she sent me this box in the mail from her. And it was all of her beautiful hair clips and hairpins and things oh, because she lost all her hair. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So this is not insignificant, this, mm-hmm. you know, losing hair. As they said, it's not it's not just hair. And what really moved me was Nancy was saying, look, because she didn't have to have chemo, she didn't have all the questions. She didn't look really like a cancer patient. And she said, you know, all those well wishes and people coming up and being very concerned can be exhausting. Absolutely. You know, even at the best of moments. So it gave her that privacy, she called it to be able to get through cancer treatment without having to do a lot of explaining. Other people don't have that luxury because it's so obvious that they're that they're ill. Yeah. Heather Bosch. Thank you, Heather. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird. CBS's Steve Hartman's nephew, Ted, is blind, something he says sometimes feels insurmountable. But after meeting a man who was working to break a record, Ted learned to look to the future to stay determined. Here's the story. And he says sometimes his blindness feels insurmountable. I see. I thought like I was doomed. <laughs> that, that, that does sound a little immature, but... A woe is me kind of feeling? Yes. I really want to be like everybody else sometimes, you know. And that's why, when I heard about this drag racer attempting to set a new world speed record, I thought Ted and others like him had to meet the driver. In 2012, Dan Parker of Columbus, Georgia, got in a crash. He suffered a traumatic brain injury so severe it blinded him. I never imagined I'd be back in the seat of a race car. But I've been a racer my whole life. I just had to figure out another way to do it. A machinist by trade, Dan got adaptive equipment so he could make parts and then designed this entire race car. That just amazes me. Dan was attempting to set the Guinness record for fastest car driven blindfolded. Of course, no blindfold was needed, but he did have a special audio guidance system and, for safety purposes, a sighted driver next to him, hands hovering over the steering wheel just in case. It wasn't necessary. Dan went 211 miles an hour, set a record, and more importantly, an example. Ted, I want you to know that blindness is not what is stopping you. Surround yourself with believers and go for your dreams. You can make excuses or make it happen. Dan says inspiring the Ted's of the world is the main reason he did this. If you can do that, well, then I think I could easily pursue my dream. Wait, wait what about flying a plane? <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to come from this. <laughs> Joining us now, my nephew, Ted. I should also mention that after that story first aired, you got an offer. Yes, I got an invitation by a pilot. He was very generous. You ready to go? I'm ready. Okay, pull back. What was that like? This is so fun. It was amazing. We're flying. 
It's like driving a car. Well, wait, have you driven a car before? <laughs> when I was younger, I, I did go down your driveway on a... <laughs> this is news to me. <laughs> well, I, I had my mom's help, but, you know. Oh, okay. So how have these examples and experiences changed your thinking? Like, it's opened the door and shown me everything that's possible in this world. What do you feel like you can't do now? Uh, what I can't do is be um, pessimistic. That is CBS's Steve Hartman. And now, from the G and Ursula show, it starts at 9 o'clock. Right here on Car Radio, here is G. Scott. I am in awe of your predictive powers. Why would I do? Because you predicted the Seahawks would win 27 or 21, and it was 24-20. So oh. that's pretty good. I'm pretty terrible at that, just so you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty terrible. But you know what I'm not terrible at? coming up with ways for you to understand what's going on with the Seattle Seahawks. All I know is, let me start off by telling you this. Back then, it didn't want me. Now we're hot. They all own me. Mike Jones and Seahawk fans. And what I mean by that is, is right now, the Seattle Seahawks are number one in their division, right? Yes. And of all the teams in the NFC Conference, right, they are number two. <laughs> if I would have told you at the beginning of the season, if I would have told you after the Rams game, if you someone would have said, don't worry about it. It's okay. The Seahawks will still be, after week eight, number one in the division because those San Francisco 49ers, yep. that's right, call Wouldn't your cousin, call your mom and them, everybody that's a Niners fan, call them and let them know that they have lost three in a row, right? But those Seattle Seahawks are number one in the division, and that's why the Niners fans call us daddy. Anyway, <laughs> when it comes to the Seahawks, it was fantastic. It, let me set the scene. It was Absolutely a gorgeous day mm-hmm. in Lumen Field. It was sunny. It was a fall day. People had their hoodies and jackets. It was throwback. It was throwback to the 90s, throwback to the Kingdom days. It was beautiful. Fans were just out there looking good. This is how we do it. At halftime, Montel Jordan was performing. Right? Yeah! I didn't know that. that by the way, <laughs> By the way, I was like, um, we was in a group chat, and my wife was like, because I, I interviewed Montel Jordan and uh, before the game, wow. and then in a group chat with some friends of ours, my wife goes, "Oh, I'm sitting here in, in, in uh, with uh, Montel Jordan." I'm thinking, "Huh, that's good." <laughs> and then one of one of my other friends says, "You should take a picture with him." I didn't see nothing. Ten minutes later, bam, picture. Oh, man. That dude looks good still. Let me hurry up. <laughs> He's coming for it. Anyways, uh, it, it was it was such a good win, Colleen. Yeah. It was fantastic. What, were the, what, were the, what was the best moment for you? Well, glad you asked that. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have to prompt you to ask me that. <laughs> so, anyways, at the end, the last drive, towards the end of the game, um, Geno Smith drops back to pass and he throws a bubble screen and he throws it to this number 11 guy. What's a bubble by the screen? Name, uh, <laughs> oh boy. He throws a screen out to the outside. Jackson Smith and Jigba is the one who catches it, runs it in for the game winning touchdown, and they win. Jackson Smith and Jigba wins the game. I call him the closer. That's right. He is the closer. So uh, that was cool. But being serious, I think my favorite moment was the entire day. Yeah. Fans were just super excited. 
Everybody's wearing their throwback stuff. I think the Seattle Seahawks did a phenomenal job. All of the music, you would have liked this, Colleen. All of the music was music was from the ask. 90s throwback. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, it, it, was, it was just a beautiful day. Again, I can't say it enough. It was a crisp fall day with with the sunshine. You know how we get in the sunshine. We get a little crazy as Pacific Northwesterners. A little vitamin D and we're like, woo, we've lost our mind. It it was a good time. Um, Dave, are you are you bought in on these Seattle Seahawks? Are you excited about these Seattle Seahawks? I I am I'm surprised at how uh, deeply affected I am by every twist and turn in the game. Because I'll be one moment sitting there saying, all right, they're going to score it. And then there's this turnover, and I just I, I can't watch. I have to leave the room. And then when I hear the yelling, the, the you know the positive yelling from the TV screen, yeah. then it's safe to go back in. Right, right. So I was in and out, in and out, in and out. And that can I play the uh, that final touchdown pass? Yeah, go ahead. Charbonnet in the backfield. Gino from the shotgun, lock it wide to the far side. JSN. He gets the throw near side. Turns out field. Got a blocker. Touchdown. And and I knew it was going to be a good Monday. <laughs> Once that happened, I said oh, I can I can go to work happy on Monday morning. Yeah. Do you do you like? How do you feel knowing that even you are emotionally tied into a football team? Yeah, I don't know why it happens, but it has. It makes you feel like you're part of a larger community, I think. Yeah. When we can all cheer over something positive and be out in the sunshine and enjoy the 90s throwbacks. like To me, that's what the sports teams do for us in Seattle. They bring us together, give us something to root for. If you were to wear, do you have anything in your closet, Dave, that would... <laughs> I have a lot of unworn jerseys, yes. Do, do you have any outfits that would make you, like, make take you back to the 90s? Oh yeah, like half my wardrobe. I thought you meant if I had sports. No, <laughs> could you? Well, how, like, how far yeah. could you go back with your wardrobe? With my wardrobe, yeah, I, I can still fit some of my college era shirts. Would that be seventies? That would be yes. Which era yeah, do you like the best be of dress? I've uh, I don't know about dress. I as I've told Colleen, I think I peaked in about nineteen ninety five. Nice. So did the Mariners. Yeah. See you guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Maybe that was the reason. Right now, it is time for Crime and Punishment, our look each week at what's going on in the King County Prosecutor's Office. And this week, we're taking a deeper look into some of the most frequent cases the office deals with, those involving domestic violence. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So I talked with David Martin, who leads the county's domestic violence unit, to ask him about the, the trends in these cases. And... Is the number, we began by talking about the number of domestic violence cases. Has it gone up or down since last year? Today, domestic violence has ebbed. We're down about 20% from the pandemic high. And fortunately, our access and civil protection orders has gone up. So that's better that people were able to access the court system and do so kind of from their home and in other ways. And virtual access is, I want to say, doubled since the pandemic began. Mm-hmm. And that's good. Of course, the goal here is to try to reduce the incidence of domestic violence. Uh, you you get these cases after things have gone too far. But do, do you get a sense that there are uh, options out there that can keep a basically an argument between two people in a relationship from getting to your desk? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. And that's really the point of all of this. You know, with with law enforcement and with others, King County has on average about 
10 to 11,000 police reports for domestic violence that happen every year. Wow. We're, a, we're a big county. That's a lot of domestic violence. And that doesn't count civil protection orders. It doesn't count also the people who are not using the criminal justice system and just calling a community-based organization or maybe their faith community trying to get services and trying to get support. And one of the things that is that is helping, we're lucky to live in a community like King County that we do have, um, we have a robust criminal response to these cases from the many cities and from the county that operate here. We also have a really uh, robust civil protection order system where people don't have to choose to access the criminal system. They can choose to go get an order for protection for themselves. We have a longstanding civil protection order program in King County where advocates can help people get the orders they need. And for decades, we've had a really robust civil and community response to domestic violence that helps a lot. The things that we're not doing as much of that we need to be doing is investing in the treatment for those who are causing harm, for those who are causing abuse. So domestic violence treatment is something that's really on the minds of a lot of people right now, doing a better job with that going forward. And the issue of prevention. How is prevention happening in our schools and with young people? Are we doing enough? And, and we're not. There needs to be a broader investment in prevention and making sure that you know messages begin when kids are, are younger, when they're in high school, so we don't have to see criminal cases later on. We're hearing from David Martin, who leads the county's domestic violence unit. One of the tools they use is the protection order, and I asked him to explain how that works. Protection orders are a really important kind of tool in the toolbox of responding to domestic violence in King County and across the state of Washington and in many communities. It means a victim can go to a court in King County and ask that court for protection when they've been a victim of abuse. They make a petition, they do that on their own. And we have advocates in King County that are able to support them in the application process to really understand what the order means. And those orders are really strong here. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, that order is just a piece of paper. It's not, it's not worth very much. And that's simply not true. Those orders are uh, very strong. They lead to mandatory arrest. They lead to really serious consequences for the people who violate them. Courts take them really seriously. And they're one of the things that have been that have been studied in great detail by the University of Washington and in others and shown to reduce the amount of domestic violence in a community. So when you're talking about a response that's not just legal, but public health, Orders do that. And today, those orders are really valuable because they also tie to the surrender of firearms. In many protection orders, it, a court's going to also order the individual to surrender their firearms. And we have a team of people at King County, the Regional Domestic Violence Firearms Enforcement Unit, which is a collection of police, advocates, and prosecutors, multi-jurisdictional. Um, they come together and they help effectuate those orders. They make sure those orders are being followed and that individuals who are subject to these orders uh, surrender their firearms. And it's a really, it's an effective program. There was a recent uh, release from the University of Washington studying its effectiveness. Um, it's really, it's a model and we're fortunate to be a part of it. Do people outside a particular uh, relationship situation play a role here? The people who can see domestic violence going on in somebody else's relationship. Uh, should they get involved to try and you know, keep it from going farther? Are there instances where they should be the ones calling you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely it is. It's not, you know, for for a long time, uh, it was the private family matter. And no one thought that they should say anything about it. And fortunately, that's changed. And I think people still struggle with that today. And there are a lot of great community-based organizations that people can call to talk to about that. And if they're really concerned for someone's safety, you know, see something, say something. Absolutely, they should. And, And the reality is that, you know, the people can make a huge difference in the life of their friends and family by trying to help address domestic violence. It's not an easy thing to do. That's why I really do encourage when those instances do come up, call any of the community-based organizations that are available in King County, talk about it with them, try and get some advice about how to approach it. And that can be a really valuable way to, to recommend action, to intervene, but it is such an important thing that the community be aware of and try and do something about. David Martin, the head of the Domestic Violence Unit of the King County Prosecutor's Office. You can find resources for domestic violence victims at the Prosecutor's Office website. It is under the tab marked Victim Advocacy. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.